1 Kings chapter 19, we'll be reading the first 10 verses this morning. Starting at verse 1, and Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. When he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and requested for himself that he might die, and said, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. As he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baking on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. And he came thither into a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Let me quickly... Catch up to speed on what is taking place in this chapter. The previous chapter we see that Elijah had challenged the prophets, the false prophets, the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the groves, 850 in all. They set up an altar. They called together all of Israel. Those false prophets begin to pray to their false gods. And they danced and cut themselves and begged and pleaded, asking for their gods to send down fire from heaven and consume the sacrifice, but to no avail. At some point, Elijah became tired of the act, frustrated with the scene, and he had them stop. He got down on his knees, but before he prayed, he drenched the sacrifice. He altered the wood and the animal carcasses with water. And then he prayed to God, and God sent down fire. And the people, full of emotion, cried out, The Lord... He is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah left extremely pleased at what God had done, or at least what he thought God had done in the hearts of his people. But word quickly got back to Jezebel. Maybe within hours. Maybe it took a night. By morning, Elijah had received the word that the queen wanted to take his life. She was angry. Look what it says in verse 2. Jezebel sends a messenger unto Elijah telling him that she is soon going to take his life. Verse 3, when he saw that, he arose and went for his life. Now, it's amazing what the mind can do to a man. We've all been there. Now, I can't understand the depths of despair that Elijah reached. I've never wanted to kill myself. Uh, I don't know if that's self-love or a sound mind. I don't know. I've never really wanted to do harm to myself. I've never sat down and said, I want to die. And I know people have reached that point. I know, listen, 
Uh, there are a lot of factors in life that can put a man or bring a man to that point, uh, whether it's chemical factors in the body or simply factors that have caused deep depression. But he literally lays down, stops eating, and wants or begs God to just let me die. Amazing that a man that's running for his life, running to save his life, is suddenly praying for God to take his life. Maybe he just thought that God would do it in a much more merciful manner than Jezebel would. I'm not for sure, but his mind began playing tricks on him, and he felt threatened. He felt like he probably most likely would be caught and killed. He's discouraged in verse 4. He sits down. Now, I have preached on this in the past, and I don't want to re-preach anything, but if you know anything about juniper trees in that part of the world, the branches start at about 18 inches up on that tree. So if you lay under a juniper tree, you are pretty low. I mean, you are down about as far as a man can go. Face first in the dust. And he's crying out, saying, it is enough. He was sick and tired, and his mind was playing with him. And be careful, when you get in this situation... A lot of times there's isolation. And, and listen, it's not a smart thing to do. When you, when you start going down and you're frustrated, discouraged, depressed, you don't want to isolate yourself because isolation only helps depression grow. He made a bad mistake. He leaves his servant behind. And he begins to think, he begins to analyze what's taking place in his life. He becomes his own counselor. Now, you want to know who your worst counselor is? Yeah, it's you. Because when you get to that point, everything going through your mind is crazy. Now, if you take a look at what he's thinking and what he's saying, when you can't think straight, you can't talk straight. But when we get to this point, we begin to analyze and reanalyze and uh, lie to ourselves, and he was believing his own lies. Listen, Perception is not reality. It's amazing how often I talk to people and they're convinced that perception is reality. I mean, I've talked to people before. Pastor, I'm just not coming back. You're not. I thought you were doing good. I, th I thought things were going well. I, I thought you were growing. I'm just not coming back. Can I help you? Have you already made up your mind? I've already made up my mind. You have. Yes, they, 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 those nursery workers hate my baby. Okay. I can see that. I can see those ladies just sitting back there saying, I can't wait for that baby to come in here. We have an hour. Your mind is playing tricks on you. You want to be careful? Because when you get to that state, to that level of depression, everything that goes through your mind is going to be half crazy. And that's the place that Elijah, this great man of God. Now remember what the Bible says about Elijah. Take a look at his amazing life and the way God used him. And now where do we find him? In the depths of depression. He's laying there. He's sleeping. God sends an angel. He's lonely. Look what it says in verse 10. He says the end of the verse, I, even I, well, that's not the truth because we know you just left your servant. If you hadn't left your servant, you'd have to say, the two of us, only the two of us are left. 
But actually, we know according to verse 18, that was an absolute lie because there were 7,000 in Israel. But when you reach this level of depression, it's a lonely place to be. And usually, that's a self-induced place of isolation. You chose that level of loneliness. Look what it says in verse 14. He said, now he's frustrated with life in general, but frustrated with standing. He's frustrated with doing right. And he says, I've been very jealous for the Lord God. And basically the implication is, where's it gotten me? I mean, good night. I've had to live at the brook, be fed by the ravens. I had to go through the humility of staying with a poor widow and having her feed me. And now I'm being chased. My life is in danger. And he said, I've been jealous for God. The children of Israel, they have forsaken thy covenants. And yet they're living in nice houses. They have a good life. I, even I, only am left. And look what the bad guys now are seeking my life to destroy it. There's nothing more dangerous in life than emotions. And we're talking about faith. The opposite of faith is living off your emotions. And here's what's going to happen in life. Either we control our emotions or our emotions begin to control us. And in 2013, we're, we're talking about with the busyness, the hectic schedule that is city life and the workload and the financial obligations. And it seems like every month uh, something new, whether it's health insurance and the rising costs or gas is going up or I'm 50 and it looks like I'm going to be laid off and I have to change my career direction. We have to move. Rent is skyrocketing. That adjustable rate mortgage that I have is just about ready to adjust. There's always a factor in life that creates instability, frustration, and could possibly lead to depression. Now, there are telltale signs when we speak of depression. Let me mention a few of them. Detachment. Be very careful when you start to detach yourself from friends and obligations and family. You start to withdraw. That's not a good place to be. When your thinking is, is a little bit off and you're frustrated and th life becomes overwhelming, the worst thing you can choose to do is to isolate yourself, withdraw from church or friends or a mate, or someone that can actually help you. And when you see someone like that, we do want to help and be kind. I don't know if we've found the balance. How many of you have seen someone as they begin to go off that cliff of depression and you didn't quite know what to say or do? How to respond, how to draw them back instead of pushing them off the edge? But that's where... He's at, he's detaching himself. The Bible says he leaves his servant. He goes a day's journey into the wilderness. That's not a smart move. He becomes despondent. And here's what he says. Verse 4. He requested for himself that he might die. He says, it's enough. Now, Lord, take away my life. I'm sure 
there are people in this building this morning. I've seen cases. I've talked to people. I've been asked to make visits before with people that are depressed and despondent. I remember going to a house one time. The shades were pulled. The blinds were lowered. When I went inside, the lights were dimmed. That person was there, and they were still in their pajamas. That's someone saying, you know what? I don't know if I want to live any longer. That's where Elijah found himself. Defeated. Now, can you imagine, this is the great prophet of God, the greatest prophet of his generation, one of the greatest of any generation. He had just called down fire from heaven. This is a man that had raised the dead. This is a man that has seen many miracles, so many, he's almost treating miracles now in a casual manner. It's such a natural, normal part of his life. But... I think he's probably just the fact his initial reaction and most likely it was caused by when you're on the mountaintop and, and you're watching these prophets of Baal and you're hoping for Israel to repent and turn to God and fire falls and the people stand up and shout in unison, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. The emotions of everything that just happened that day and you go to bed, you barely sleep, uh, you're rehearsing everything in your mind, and as soon as you wake up in the morning, here comes someone knocking on your door with the news, the queen wants to kill you. Now, be careful before you get too harsh with Elijah, because all of these factors combined caused him to react in a wrong manner, and he got up, he got dressed, and he ran. Now, when he stops running, when he finally slows down, when he finally takes a deep breath, he's already been counseling himself now for 24 hours, which is really, really bad. <laughs> but he gets out there and he says, I don't know how I can go back. I mean, my servant knows what I did. I'm supposed to be the man of God, a man of courage. And as soon, listen, his life had been in danger before. Did you realize they'd been seeking his life? Ahab had sought his life for three years. This wasn't the first time he'd been threatened. But this is the first time he had reacted this way. And it was, it was so many of, it was like the perfect storm. So many things in life coming together. He probably hadn't eaten. Uh, we know he hadn't got much sleep. The emotions of everything that had happened the day before. And even probably... Thinking about the whole nation yelling out to God, the Lord he has got, and then watching them, that it was just a shout, nothing more. Watching as they just turned and then walked away, all those, those false prophets were slain. He knew that nothing had really changed. And in his heart, I imagine, he thought, if fire falling from heaven, if the slaying of all those false prophets, if that great miracle did not create any permanent change in their hearts, why am I in the ministry? Is there any hope for this nation? If that did not have a lasting effect, I might as well resign and retire right now. Do you see the point that he has reached? And then there was some Deception involved, self-deception. He said, I only, I, 
him left. Be careful. Because most Christians will reach this point at some point in their life. I'm the only one in this marriage that's putting forth any effort. I'm the only one in this marriage that's interested in the well-being and the rearing of these children. I'm the only one in this ministry giving 100%. I'm the only one in this church. I'm the only one. Now, that's a small world. Can you imagine Elijah saying, I, even I, in the world, I'm the only one that even cares anymore. Actually not. God said, I'm going to do you a favor and just put a number on it. There are 7,000 that haven't bowed. Now, what's the answer? Now, this is overly simplistic, and I will explain myself in here just over the next few minutes. But faith is the answer. Faith is the cure. Because faith is not some magic dust that we hold in our pocket and we sprinkle it at whim or at will and get God to do what we want, how we want it, and when we want it. That's not faith. Faith, faith is saying God knows exactly what he's doing. God sees me. God cares and God has a perfect plan. That's faith. Faith is trusting God despite the circumstances. And let me just say this. Did you know that sometimes God will allow circumstances in your life to reveal who you are and to get you to stop trusting you? How many of you have ever been through a valley so low it revealed the worst in you. You thought, I didn't even know any of that was left in me. I thought I was a better person than that. I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I reacted that way. I can't believe I thought that. And you got to a point, you said, boy, I'm not very trustworthy. I'm going to have to stop trusting in myself. God says, good. That's exactly what I wanted you to do. Now, here are a few quick lessons we can learn from this chapter. Number one. It's amazing how quickly we go from the mountaintop of victory to the valley of depression. Did you know it can happen in 30 minutes? Have you ever been to a conference? God moved and it was that the Holy Spirit shook your heart and you walked down the aisle and you took your family, you made things right, and then you walked out the door. You got in the car and the first stoplight you came to that car seat wasn't correctly buckled in. You hit the brakes a little too hard. Someone else wasn't paying attention. That car seat fell forward. The baby hit its head. And everything that you had just heard and learned and accomplished came undone. As that child screamed, and then someone else screamed, and then your whole house was in disarray five minutes after you just met with God. You got a phone call. You received a letter. You talked to someone. Got some bad news. And suddenly, listen, we come off mountaintops so quickly, and he had, just, he had just seen one of the most amazing events recorded in the entire Bible, and within 24 hours, he's at the lowest point of his life, ready to quit and begging for God to take his life. That's how quickly we go. Now, there, there are so many factors. One of those factors is fear. And listen, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. Christians, here's why it's so important to live by faith. 
It's easy to take a look at this world and, and it doesn't matter if it's a precarious job situation, a, a financial situation, a sickness. You go to the doctor, you, now you need a surgery and my insurance isn't going to cover that. There are so many things in life. You're looking at the instability, the, the uncertainties. You're saying, well, our business is about ready to close down. I might be laid off. The doctor hasn't identified what that lump is. They're going to run some tests. There are a million things in life that can create immediate fear. And then the mind begins to work. Isn't it strange how the mind always imagines the worst? It's amazing how many problems I deflate during the week that are imaginary. People call, hey, Pastor, you know, hey, this. I said, do you know that or are you supposing that? No, no, I'm for sure. How do you know? Well, because we have to, uh, be, well, I don't know, but that's certainly the way it looks. Why don't you take a breath and call me back up in another week? You know, I normally don't get the phone call. It's amazing how many tragic circumstances 10 days later are totally forgotten. If he would have taken a deep breath, said, I'm going to pray about this for 24 hours, things would have been totally different. But because he began to run, because he isolated himself, because he allowed fear to bang around in the corridors of his mind, he said, I just want to isolate everyone else. I'm going to leave my servant here. I just want to lay down. I just want to sleep. The only problem is your body wasn't made to sleep 24 hours. So as you lay, your mind will continue to mess with you. And the longer you think about it, the more you're convinced. The world is coming to an end. Jezebel is going to kill me. Most likely, if she doesn't find me, I'll starve to death first. Elijah, you've been used to raise the dead and call down fire from heaven. You've been fed by ravens. And suddenly, God can't take care of you. Suddenly, God doesn't care. Suddenly, you're forgotten. I think fatigue had a big part to do with all of this. And let me just say this, folks. You don't want to live fatigued. I'm not preaching on nutrition this morning. I, I believe we've got to be careful about our diets. And I believe diet has a lot to do with fatigue. And I believe unnecessary activity has a lot to do with fatigue. I think there's a lot of things in our schedule that God never intended to be part of our schedule. We've added unnecessary Activity that's left us frazzled and fatigued. And I believe that was part of it. I believe failure was part of it. I want you to think about this man and his ministry. He is nearing the end of his ministry. But imagine after everything that he has done, really what has he accomplished that was lasting? What lasting impact or effect has he had on the nation? And he's looking at that saying, I'm a failure. Now, failing doesn't make you a failure. How many you ever felt? If you haven't failed, that means you've never tried to do anything. How many of you, from the outside looking in, consider Elijah to be a failure? None of us. But because he allowed his mind to go this direction, suddenly he goes from the mountaintop down to the valley. Number two, faith is a daily challenge. It's a daily battle. 
Because if you look at Elijah's life, he had lived from what we can see and what's recorded in Scripture. He had lived every day by faith. When, when God said, hey, go tell Ahab it's not going to rain, by faith. Can you imagine going and telling the king, it's not going to rain for three years? That's impossible. It won't. Can you imagine? God says, I want you to go get to the brook Kareth, and uh, I want you to stay there. I've commanded the ravens to sustain you. And he goes. And it dries up. God says, I want you to go to that widow's house, and she'll sustain you. And he goes. Everything we see in his life was based on faith. He lived every day from what we can tell from what Scripture records. He lived every day by faith. But the problem with faith is, Living by faith today and growing in faith this week doesn't guarantee anything eight days, ten days, or twenty days from now because living by faith is a daily challenge, is a daily battle. How many of you have ever realized that? And you looked at your own life and you said, boy, I was doing so well last week. I was doing so well yesterday. I was doing so well last month. What happened? Faith is a daily battle. And he wakes up, gets the news, and fear fills his heart. We're talking about one of the greatest Christians that ever lived. Fear so grips him, he gets on his running shoes and leaps. I want you to see number three. Elijah got really, really disappointed. You say, preacher... It's not very deep theology. No, it's very basic observation, and very practical, because most of us will find ourselves in this same spot. We all have expectations, and although we've heard people preach and people say and others recommend not to have high expectations, we still do it. Kids go into marriage. Have you ever talked to two young people in love? And you walked away and you just smiled. And what did you say to yourself? Not to them, of course. They'll learn. <laughs> now, you, you know you've had a good marriage and you've survived your lumps and bumps and you've grown together and now you know what true love is. But you too got married with high expectations. You too got saved, became a member of the church, looked around and said, I just wandered into a perfect environment with perfect people. It's incredible. Everyone's just a perfect Christian. And then after about six months, you're saying, wow, what a bunch of lousy people. I think I'm going to have to find another church. We all have expectations in life. And here's, here's the problem. These unreal expectations we put on people and and even God and ourselves, our maid, our, our children, those around us, those we work with, our bosses. We do it with everybody and everything in life in general. And here's what happened. When that fire fell and those people stood up and said, The Lord, He is God, the Lord, He is God. His expectations were, This nation has changed. My life is complete. I'm finally fulfilled. God has used me to bring this nation back to him. Revival is going to sweep from town to town and village to village. 
And we will see, not, not just now with the death of these false prophets, but the altars will be torn down. People's lives will be cleaned up. The marriages will come back together. It's amazing what's going to happen in this nation because of this day. You know what happened? Nothing. They all woke up the next day, same people, same problems in their marriages, same habits. And they most likely didn't go up and tear down all the altars. They were just short 850 prophets. That's the only thing that had changed. They had to go ordain some new false prophets. That's the only thing that had changed in the nation. And because his expectations were so great upon God's people, and listen to me, you better be careful, because especially in a church like this where we have so many ministries and everyone's life is so intertwined because you work together in the nursery and then your kids come together to school. And the problem is, if you teach at the school, if your kids come together at school, uh, you have five-year-olds together for six and seven hours at a time. And five-year-olds talk. I have yet to meet a discreet five-year-old. My mom and my daddy were fighting today. And kids always ask questions, they were. Yes, it was really, really loud. Yeah, we're not going to give any more details. I know some of you are just waiting for the next line. Who was it and what did they say? No, I'm not going to tell you. You know what? We all know we're imperfect. The best thing you can do in life is laugh about that. Amen. Aren't you glad that everyone else is imperfect so they can forgive your imperfections? But you better be careful because you'll have expectations on a ministry or a leader or a co-worker or a, a someone else in the church and you'll hold someone up in high esteem. That's why you want to keep your eyes on God and not on people because eventually in life everyone is going to make a mistake. Everyone in life has a potential to fail you. So don't get your eyes locked in on a person, but on God. And if Elijah had maintained his eyes, his focus upon God, God hadn't changed. Elijah, do you really need all of these people to repent, turn to God, live a perfect life in order to be happy? Then you're probably not going to be happy. Be careful with expectations. And then the expectations upon himself. I love verse 4. Go back with me. It is enough. Oh, Lord, take my life. Look at his next statement. For I am not better than my father's. So? I mean, God, really, I'm not better than my father's. Who said you were? Is that what your mom told you? <laughs> I mean, who told you that? Really, Elijah, who told you you were better than your father's? Maybe something that you expected, that's something you expected of yourself. Who even expected you to be better than your fathers? That is an expectation that you placed upon yourself. And here's what we do. We start comparing ourselves among ourselves, which Paul said in Corinthians, that's not very wise. And there wasn't anybody expecting or comparing Elijah to. You know what we do in our minds? Well, you know, it's like the crazy man that said, I don't go to football games anymore because every few minutes, 11 guys get together on the field and start talking about me. <laughs> That's Baptist behavior. 
Oh, yeah, I don't know. They're, they're talking about me. You have not even crossed their minds. And he's thinking, well, the people of God, Elijah, the people of God are not comparing you to anyone. They're not even thinking about you. Well, I'm just ready to die because I'm not better than my daddy. Who cares? I think you're the only one that's even concerned about that. Your daddy's not even concerned about that. The real problem was, it's not just that frustration with people and the frustration with himself, but then there's a general frustration with God. Because look what he says in verse 14. He said, I have been very jealous. I've done things right and I've stood. The children of Israel, they have forsaken thy covenants. They have thrown down thine altars. They have slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. What's the implication? God, things aren't right. God, you know, you really haven't done things right here. And I'm confused and I'm upset. And I uh, wish you'd straighten this whole thing out. Be careful. God, if you really cared. Now, guys, I want you to see something in the next few verses that is simply amazing. Because if you're in the cave, you've got to get out immediately. This is really a dangerous place for any Christian to find themselves. This is a dangerous place for your mind. This is a dangerous place for your family. This is a dangerous place for your ministry. This is a dangerous place for your reputation, for your future. You don't want to find yourself here. Here's what's astounding before we go back and, and look at how wrong Elijah was in his thinking. Here's the danger of finding yourself in depression and finding yourself in this state of mind. Elijah, the great man of God, one of the greatest men of God of all time, suddenly became a rebel. Look what it says in verse 9. He came hither unto a cave. Where was Elijah at this point going to reside? In a cave. And look what it says. This is bad. Lodged there. You find yourself in a cave. Listen, that's not a time to buy a bedroom set and set up house. You don't need to buy the property. Okay? One night is too long, but he determines to lodge there. And what does the word of the Lord say unto him? What doest thou here, Elijah? Now look what God's command was to him, verse 11. And God said to Elijah, go forth, stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. Now let me ask you this. What was the clear command of God to Elijah? What is he supposed to do? He's supposed to leave the cave, go to the mount. Let's see if he does that. There comes a tornado, an earthquake, and a fire, verse 13. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entering in of the cave. And a second time a voice comes unto him and says, What doest thou hear, Elijah? This is called blatant disobedience. Elijah, get out of the cave, go up to the mount. Did he go? Did he step a toe out? He stayed put, laying down, deep in depression. And God sends a tornado, earthquake, and a fire to wake him up, get his attention. And even then, he just walks to the entrance of the cave. 
called direct disobedience. Be careful. Because even as a Bible believer, even as someone who grew up in church, even as someone who clearly understands Bible principle, even as someone who's walked by faith in the past and has established a constant, regular, daily walk with God, you better be careful because you may hit a point in life where everything, it may be a hormonal imbalance. It may be problems in your marriage. It may be financial, a financial downturn. And all these things happened at once and you just hit the perfect storm and you can't control your emotions and you can't get out of bed in this day and age, usually it's not a problem of not eating, but then that's when you pull out five gallons of ice cream in a single spoon, right? You put a towel around your neck, and the next thing you know, your husband walks in, and you have two bites left. Honey, I bought that for the outing on Sunday for all, all 28 of us. That's okay. That's that's okay, don't worry, but don't cry, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll get some more gallons for you today. Don't worry about it. There's more ice cream on the way right now. I can call it in. Now, emotionally, when you reach that point, you, you better be cautious because the danger is that's really when we become rebellious against God and God says, not where you're supposed to be, I don't even care. You have a ministry, you have a family, you have children, you have a husband, you have obligations. I don't care. You're supposed to be there, not here. I don't care. Be careful. Most people never find themselves rebellious to any biblical command until they hit despair, despondency, defeat, depression. And suddenly they're willingly, they're willingly, openly, blatantly disobedient to God. Now, here's what happened. I want you to see something. Go back with me to verse 11. No, actually go back with me to verse 5 because when, when he takes off and he runs, really, what is the root problem of all of this? God doesn't care. People... This will cross your mind at some point in life. No matter how strong you are, no matter how much Bible you've read, something in your life will shake you to a point. You'll, you will actually see God do something you totally do not understand. And at that moment, Satan will whisper into your ear, God doesn't care. Does not care about you. If he did care about you, he wouldn't have let that happen. God's not even watching. There are 7 billion people on this planet. You think God even knows you exist? You've heard those words. You've gone to fill up your car when you didn't have any money. And you were going to do ministry. And Satan said, God doesn't even notice your sacrifice. You've put up with that man or with that boss. You've put up with that situation. And Satan has gotten you focused on the worst moments of life. And you said, God doesn't care. Now imagine, Elijah, I understand why he's thinking this, because he just came off the mountaintop and Jezebel said, 
I'm going to cut your head off. And when the Bible says he saw it, he didn't hear that. He literally saw the sword as it came down, ripping through the muscles and the bone in his neck. And he saw his own head as it rolled off onto the ground, into the dirt. He saw it in his mind. He saw it. He went depression. But the bottom line was, he didn't see that God was working. Now, let me ask you this. You, in hindsight, can go back and read 1 Kings 18, 19, 20, and 21. So in hindsight, we know God cares. We know God had everything established and in order and would take care of him. But the problem was Elijah was actually living in the moment. Now think about this for a minute. When he ran, God could have said, okay, you're running. You're leaving my will. I'm not going to lift a finger to help you. What does God do? He goes out a day's journey into the wilderness. He sits down under a juniper tree. And as he lays, look what God did for him. God cared so much, he sent an angel with food. God doesn't care. Oh, wait a minute. You just left his will. You just ran in fear. Everything in your body language is screaming. God doesn't care. Yet he sent an angel from heaven with food to sustain you. God cares. Now, hold on. God cares so much he's going to personally come down and talk to you. Elijah, what doest thou here? God cares so much. Look what it says in verse 11. He said, go forth, stand on the mount. Does Elijah do it? No. He stays in the cave. Now, God cares so much, he didn't send down the lightning and have it strike you. Right? Imagine if you told your child, get up, walk out that door. I bet you would respond just like God did. That's okay. Now, look what God does. He loves and cares for Elijah so much. Does three things. He sends wind, a strong and great wind that rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks. How many of you have seen that before? You ever seen wind so strong it rends a mountain and breaks rocks in two? That's a strong wind. That's what we call a tornado. So he sends a tornado, and what does Elijah do? He's still laying in the cave. He's watching trees blow by and rocks hurled. And the mountain is renting too. He's just laying there. Maybe God's answering my prayer to take my life. Then what's the next thing God does? The Lord was not in the wind. After that, there's an earthquake. So a tornado happens and he's still laying in the cave. Now, this is the time I'd hop out of the cave. Right? When the earth quakes and the rocks begin to fall and the ground, right where he's laying, you know, it kind of opens up a little bit. This is depression. When you can lay there and stay there under these conditions. Hold on for a second. He wasn't even done. Then what's it say? He sent, after the earthquake, verse 12, a fire. So you're laying there. Trees blow by. Rocks are cracked in two. Boulders are coming down off the mountain. Then the earthquakes and the rocks begin to open up. 
the ground you were laying on was cracked. And then suddenly, fire falls. And everything you can see outside that cave is devoured and consumed by a fire sent by Almighty God. Where's Elijah at? In depression. <laughs> you know what's amazing? When you're in the pool of depression, what can be happening around you? And you, know, you know. The kids are crying. The husband's burning the, the mill. The world is falling apart. You're just laying there saying, Oh, God, I just want to die. <laughs> Make it quick. I can't believe this. He didn't even lift a finger. He is literally laying there saying, I can't believe that rock that fell actually missed my head. God, if you had a better aim, I'd be in heaven right now. Hold on for a second. Elijah had been so used to the supernatural, the supernatural now had absolutely no effect on him. God wasn't in the tornado, and God wasn't in the earthquake, and God wasn't in the fire. And then God said, okay, I'm just going to be quiet. And Elijah got up. What's going on? This isn't fun anymore, God, okay. God just went quiet and whispered, Elijah. He jumped up, went to the mouth of that cave, looked around what remained. Everything outside had changed within the past few hours. Here's what God was telling him. God was saying, Elijah, you got so used to me doing the miraculous, you think that's the only way I work. Now, if you go back and you look at Bible history, you only find three periods in all of the history of mankind where miracles were done by God. The time of Moses and Joshua, and he always used two different men. And it was a time when there was a new revelation being given, the revelation of his law, but you had that during the time of Moses and Joshua. You had that during the time of Elijah and Elisha, during the time of Jesus Christ and Paul. Those are the only three time frames. But you know what God was telling Elijah? Elijah, you think the only way I work is by earthquakes and fires and tornadoes. Elijah, I want to tell you something. I work in a quiet, still voice when most people can't even see that I'm working. You know when God does his work? You know, literally in life, we think God isn't working because we don't see him working. And I have parents that are unsaved, and my kid has gone astray in this, and God, why aren't you doing anything? And God says... Why am I not doing anything? You mean, why can't you see anything that I'm doing? But God says, you know how I work in Bill? I don't need a big stick. I don't need a car accident. I don't need a job change. You know how I work in Bill? Same way I work with most people. Bill, don't do that. I think God was trying to tell Elijah something. Elijah you're confused and you're frustrated because you want me to, 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 you want to see me work in such a powerful way. You want to see this nation turned upside down. You want to see visible results. 
But Elijah, I'm telling you something. I'm doing so much that you don't see, so much that you don't notice. I'm working in so many people, so many hearts, so many marriages, so many young people, so many teenagers, so many college students. And you are clueless. You can't see that because you're expecting the ground to open up. You're expecting the mountain to fall over. You're expecting fire to fall. And if you don't see that, you don't hear it. You can't touch it. I'm not working. Now, Elijah had come on. Elijah said, if he followed me out here and he spoke to me in a cave and he personally sent an earthquake, fire, tornado to speak to me, I think he loves me. You know, you know what? Are you sitting around expecting God to show you his love through a tornado? Did you know every day God says, I love you enough I will speak to you in a still small voice. That is proof of his love. Do you know there are 7 billion people on this planet and the very fact that he would take time out of his schedule, he's got a lot of things going on. It's not just a planet, but galaxies that he's overseeing, yet he looks at you and cares enough to speak to you. Now, here's, here's what's amazing. This, there's so much in this that, that speaks of God's love towards his servant. Things we don't pay attention to. Have you thought about the fact Elijah's depressed, frustrated. He lays down. He's crying out to God. Now, he does this several times. God, just kill me. Uh, God, save me from Jezebel. God, just kill me. Don't let Jezebel find me. God, just take my life. Now, God was so loving, so kind. He said, Elijah, this sounds stupid. Listen to yourself. You big baby. I wonder what God said in that still small voice. He didn't record it in Scripture because we'd enjoy it too much. <laughs> you big ball baby. Man, I've used you to do everything. You're one of the greatest prophets of all time. You're asking me to kill you. You know what I think personally? I think when God sent that fire, he let it get so close, Elijah could feel it. When God sent that tornado, he literally saw boulders flying by the entrance of that cave. When God sent that earthquake, I believe he rent the ground within the inches of Elijah to say, Elijah, I could kill you at any time. I'm not going to do you that favor. You know what I think God told Elijah in his still small voice? You baby. Just for asking me that nonsense, you know what I'm going to do? I'm not even going to let you die. <laughs> now you say, Pastor, you just inserted your opinion. No, I didn't. God didn't even let him die. Two people in all recorded history that we see in the Bible that did not die. God said, just for that, I'm going to send down a chariot and pick you up. Just for that, there will be no grave to mark your death. No one will even be able to come by and say, that was the great prophet Elijah. I'm just going to come by and pick you up and take you to glory, you big old baby. <laughs> do you see that God cares? And here's what you got to do. When you reach that point where you're frustrated and life's overwhelming and you've had enough, you better open your eyes and understand God does care. God sees, God hears, God's paying attention. And the only way out of this is by faith to say, I trust God because you know what? 
God had a perfect plan. And Jezebel, God is so sovereign. Have you ever thought about God holds the planet in his hand and God is the sovereign ruler over everything? I've been sitting in airports before, ready to miss a meeting. I remember last year, Brother Ouellette came. And I was preaching a meeting. We were supposed to, I was supposed to fly in at 4. He was supposed to fly in at 4.15. I said, that's perfect. I'll fly in, get done with my meeting, pick him up, run him to the hotel, go home, get changed. And the storm hit, and we got stuck. And I wasn't even supposed to fly to Arkansas, and they had us in Arkansas. <laughs> 6 o'clock. Have you ever been sitting on a plane, and you, all your hatred was directed toward United? Right? And I was sitting there fuming. Called up Robert. Robert, I'm in Little Rock. What are you doing in Little Rock, preacher? I thought you'd be... Nope. I'm in Little Rock. Been sitting on this runway for about an hour, and now they're telling us we get to spend the night in Little Rock. Uh, I said, uh, Robert, buy me a ticket from Little Rock to... Uh, I don't care. Anywhere. Just buy me a ticket. I said, see if you can find me a ticket. He said, preacher, I found a ticket. I said, just buy it. And he bought it. And I walked up to the cabin. I said, can I talk to the captain? And I said, sir, you're not supposed to be out. Please. I'm a Baptist minister. I'm not supposed to do anything violent. I'm not supposed to cuss. <laughs> but at this moment, you could push me over the edge. Would you? Please give me 30 seconds with the pilot. And he said, sir, it, it, did you realize since 911, um, we don't let people interrupt their flights. You're not even supposed to be in Little Rock. How can we fly you out of Little Rock? You're not even here. I said, I'm not. It sure feels like I'm right here. It feels like a bummer because I'm supposed to be in Austin. I said, he said, sir, you can't go anywhere. I said, sir, I'm, I am begging you for the love of Jesus. And next thing you know, black suburban pulls up. Had my own bodyguard. Felt important for about 30 seconds. Showed him a ticket I had bought to put me on a plane. How many remember Brother Ouellette finished preaching? I walked in during the invitation. Now, you know what? Those are moments you say God is sovereign. But you're looking at United. United messed up my night. No, there's a God in heaven that knows exactly what is supposed to be done today. God said, Adam, I don't want you at that service. And I don't want you cussing at United either. <laughs> but here's the problem. Elijah had his eyes on the circumstances. He's thinking God doesn't know what he's doing. God knows exactly what he is doing. He has a perfect plan for Jezebel. He has a perfect plan for Ahab. He has a perfect plan for you. God knows what he is doing. God loves you. Now here's what you're supposed to do. Elijah, look what it says in verse 15. We'll be done. The Lord said to him, Go return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. When thou comest, anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. Jehu, the son of Ninchai, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. Elisha, the son of Shaphat, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. You know, God told him, Elijah, it's about time you find a task greater than you. Get out of this cave. Go get busy. Because, Elijah, I still want to use you. People, here's the importance of living by faith. God in his love and mercy says, I love you so much, I want to use you in this.
Why wouldn't you raise your hand? Why wouldn't you volunteer? Why would you say God loves me so much he wants to use me? He wants to include me in his plan? Boy, I want to get involved in that. He said, Elijah, I want to use you. Get up. Get out of this cave. Go get busy. Now, be careful. If you're a housewife, this is why you got to be careful. Because it's in those moments where there's a little bit of excess time. Your mind begins to work. Here's what God wants you to do. He doesn't want you to live in depression or isolated. He doesn't want you to live frustrated. He doesn't want you to live counseling yourself. He wants you to get busy as a purpose for you. He wants to use you. God says there are thousands, yea, millions of people, billions without the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wish you'd get involved in my plan. It's a pretty good plan. Here's what he said. Get up. I want you to go anoint the next king. I want you to take on a task that's bigger than you. And people, you know how we can get, we can get so far ahead when we stop living in this little selfish, self-absorbed world that's concerned about me and what's happening to me and what I enjoy and who cares about me, who looked at me cross-eyed and why aren't you helping me and praying for me? Why don't you get up and by faith get involved? You can do something much bigger than you simply by volunteering to be used of God, you get past your depression. Amen. And guess what? Here's an amazing thing. That still small voice got Elijah's attention. And he got up. And he got out of the cave. And for the first time in 40 days, that's amazing. For the first time in 40 days, got his eyes off himself. Look what it says, verse 13. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle. He went out, stood in the entering of the cave. Behold, there came a voice. Still griping, still complaining. God got him up, got him out, gave him new purpose, greater task. He said, Elijah, get over yourself. There's a lot of work to do, Elijah. Get over yourself.